it seems like a lot of present-day diversity trainings of all stripes are moving against any concept of universalism. It seems like they want to view everything through the lens of racial differences, as though that's the only thing that matters and as though they should always be salient. I view that in light of what we know about human nature and social psychology as just poisonous. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. In 1990, an unlikely candidate presented himself for the presidential elections in Peru. Alberto Fujimori had been a successful academic, the rector of an important university in Peru, and he ran on a populist ticket promising to do more for ordinary people in Peru. Even though he was a Japanese-American, he had no Chinese heritage, he was probably known as El Chino, broadly speaking, the Chinese guy. And his campaign even leaned into that designation. Here is a song from his campaign. So that roughly translates to this is the dance, this is the rhythm, this is what encounters the Chinese guy. Alberto Fujimori did very bad things to Peru over the 10 years that he was in charge, concentrating power in his own hands, violating human rights in serious ways before he was forced out when just colossal corruption of his regime was exposed. Well, today Fujimori is in the news again because Peru just had the first round of presidential elections last week. And what we saw is three important lessons that are important well beyond the country. The first is that in the age of the internet and of social media, in the age in which stable political loyalties have mostly disappeared, it is very difficult to predict elections and all kinds of things can happen. Peru has a presidential election system that is similar to France's. There's a first round with lots of candidates and the first two contenders qualify for a runoff in the second round. Well, the top candidate turned out to be Pedro Castillo, a self-declared Marxist communist with deep sympathies for the Castro regime in Cuba, with deep solidarity uh, to the dictatorship in Venezuela, somebody who, by the way, is also deeply socially conservative Uh, like many of those regimes, opposed to same-sex marriage, to abortion, and other things. He was in the single digits, in the low single digits in polls, but ended up getting 19% of the vote uh, after he became a bit of a social media sensation in the couple of weeks before the election. The second lesson is that there is a very long populist inheritance, that even populists who seem to have left the political scene, to have been deeply discredited, can surge back in one way or another 30 years later. Because the opponent of Pedro Castillo in the runoff will be Keiko Fujimori, the daughter of Alberto Fujimori, who got 13.3% in the vote. It is very difficult to predict which of those two candidates is likely to win in the runoff. Well, the third lesson is that all kinds of different institutional setups 
lead to strange accidents. These two politicians are not the most popular politicians in Peru. It seemed very, very unlikely that either of them would be president until recently. But at this point, Peruvians face a really bitter choice between Pedro Castillo and Keiko Fujimori. This election result worries me because it casts even deeper political instability for one of the relative success stories in South America. But it should also worry people well beyond the borders of Peru because the deep volatility of politics in the internet age, the long persistence of populist leaders and their descendants, and the way in which institutions can produce strange accidents, all hold true in North America and Western Europe and other democracies as well. Strange and bizarre as the Peruvian story with a Japanese Peruvian populist going by the name of the Chinese guy whose daughter somehow lucks into the second round of elections, perhaps into the presidency 30 years later, might be. I fear that we will see versions of it in other countries around the world in years and decades to come. Today, it's my great pleasure to have Jesse Single on the podcast. Jesse is a contributing writer for New York Magazine. He is the co-host, together with Katie Herzog, of a really fun, irreverent podcast called Blocked and Reported about our strange cultural moment. And he has a new book out called The Quick Fix, Why Fat Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. So we had a really deep conversation about some of the replication crisis in psychology and other parts of social science how it is that surely social science has done real damage in the world, and how it is that we can read science critically, push back against some of those dangerous fads without losing trust in the scientific enterprise itself. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Jesse Single, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Asha, thank you for having me. So Jesse, obviously somebody who has a great podcast thinking a lot about the strange debates we're having in the United States at the moment, for lack of a better word, pressing culture war that the whole country seems to be being consumed by. But you're really somebody who has studied social science and the way it has been misused and abused in quite a lot of detail. So I want to start by talking about that. You know, in your new book, you argue that fat psychology can't cure our social ills. That's part of the subtitle, I think really you're arguing that it often worsens our social ills. Why is it that this field of social science has actually had a real impact on the world and why should we worry about that? Yeah, that's the big question. So it's really social psychology in particular that I zoom in on. And in the 21st century in particular, it has been incredibly successful when it comes to the TED Talk stage, when it comes to coming up with applications of its research findings, social psychology is everywhere, educationally, the boardroom, the military, as we'll discuss. And because of this like weird, unfortunate confluence of factors, partly the methodological tools that psychologists use, which turned out to be quite shoddy, and partly the rise of sort of this one cool trick can style internet coverage of research papers or more often press releases. We just had this phase that probably peaked around, I think we're on the back end of it, but around 2012 or 2010, 
all these ridiculous ideas were just getting dumped into the mainstream and, and treated as serious. And these weren't ideas being sold by people we wouldn't view as trustworthy, but often by people with impressive credentials from Harvard or Yale or the University of Pennsylvania. So give me an example of that. What is an idea that was taken seriously in the mainstream that did actual damage as opposed to, you know, the thing you always get in the media, which is, uh, you know, some sensationalist study uh, that actually doesn't quite say what the press release say, says, and the article doesn't quite say what the press release says, and, you know, the reader doesn't quite understand what the article says, and by the right. end of it, we end up with some kind of faddish claim. But most of the time, that seems at best mildly annoying or sort of irritating, right? The idea of mirror neurons, which is very controversial in science, but somehow, you know, when you see somebody suffer, you yourself suffer in the same way or something like that. Whatever, it may be a silly thing to believe, but it doesn't seem to do all that much damage. Why should we actually worry about this? Yeah, that's a fair question. So I think some of the ideas I talk about, like I talk about power posing, which is this idea that if you stretch your arms out, you'll feel more powerful. And the claim was this would help women achieve more in the office and remediate gender inequity. This was a really viral TED talk, right? And the yeah. idea is like you just have to like stretch out your arms and like whatever. And before you go on stage and suddenly your life will be transformed. I mean, so first of all, actually, I would love to know, you know, how did that become regarded as a serious study? What's the methodological problem there? But then second, this seems like perhaps a harmless case, right? Because who cares? If people go around doing these poses before the meetings, they might look a little silly, but it's probably not going to do much damage. Yeah, well, so I was going to say, this is an example of something I would put at the low end of the harmfulness scale, but I think it's basically an opportunity cost argument and a focus argument. I think political scientists have sophisticated views on like focus and attention and how they work. You probably know more about that than I do, but even a relatively harmless idea like power posing, it brings with it all these assumptions about the nature of the gender gap. Like we at this point have a pretty sophisticated understanding of the gender gap in the workplace. And I believe it has a lot to do with like 26 or 27. A lot of Americans have their first kid, maybe a little later, maybe 30. It is the woman who bears the child. It is often the woman who has to leave the workplace and interrupt her career. And that is a complicated problem to solve. If instead you're told, well, the problem is women feel they don't have enough power at work and you can address this by having them do power poses, which was the argument for a while, that does cause the public to view this problem in a more simplistic way than it deserves. So I do think it's at the more harmless end of the harmfulness scale, but I, I think I can test the idea that any of these ideas that go viral are harmless because by dint of going viral, we're talking about them instead of talking about other stuff. This is, I think, a convincing point that it actually perpetuates a misunderstanding, which is harmful because it means that we're not going to be able to solve the problem. I mean, when we talk about the gender gap, I have a similar view to you, which is that the big problem in law, for example, is the partner track. There's just a very limited number of years relatively early in your career, which are make or break. And if women still provide more of the childcare as they do to their own children, and that is you know, right at this decisive moment, that just makes them much less likely to make partner. And this has sort of serious earning consequences down the line. You know, the power posing may be a little bit of a distraction from that. I think an even deeper one is that we want to explain all of those kinds of structural differences and outcomes through prejudice. Yes. Right? That yeah. the idea is, you know, why do the women not make partner? It must be because the old male partners are bigoted against these young women. I mean, I'm not ruling out that it may be the case in certain situations or in certain circumstances, but by and large, that doesn't seem to be the case. The problem is 
that you need to make partner by 40. And those are the years in which people have children and women still look after the children more. And so then they are out of a partner track. And so giving partners trainings about how to treat younger women with more respect is probably not going to solve this problem. So you talk about that in the, in the book as well, right? About particularly the role of implicit association tests. Yeah, I think this and the military PTSD thing we'll discuss, I hope, are the two most harmful. The implicit association test, I bet most of your listeners know the basics, but basically you sit down at a computer and it measures your reaction time to different stimuli. And the short boiled down version is if it's easier for you to connect good concepts with images of white faces, then good concepts with black faces, or you could switch around bad concepts, white faces, bad concepts, black faces. This for two decades has been taken as evidence that you have implicit bias. And there are so many problems with this that I lay out in in a lengthy chapter critiquing it. One of them is these tests don't appear to have any meaningful correlation with people's behavior, even in contrived lab settings. So if you get a high score on the implicit association test, meaning you're biased against Black people in theory, and most white people do, there are some racial patterns that are suggested of something, but that high score doesn't actually mean anything about your real world behavior. There's something like a 1% correlation, or it accounts for 1% of the variance in behavior in lab studies. This has gotten to the point where in 2015, even the founders of the test acknowledged the test is too noisy to predict individual behavior. So that's question one. Why is this test a blockbuster? And why are people being told this reveals something meaningful about you when it frankly doesn't? We don't know exactly what it's testing. It seems to be testing a mix of different things going on inside your head, not all of which, or maybe not even most of which could be fairly called bias. So the focusing issue and the attention issue. I take it you would agree that implicit bias in the last 10 years has like sort of taken over the conversation of why racism goes on in America, right? Yeah, I think it plays a large role. And by the way, the implicit bias test, just to make it clear, the most famous example of it is around race, but there are versions of it that you can still, I believe, take on the website of the organization around every conceivable question. So there's man versus woman, there's Finn versus overweight people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you can sort of do all of this in, in different things. And yes, I think that sort of both implicit bias tests and of course implicit bias trainings have become incredibly influential over the last years. But more broadly, I think it is the deeper mental framework. When we talk about the gender wage gap, we talk about, well, it must be that, you know, employers are biased against women. When we talk about differences right. in outcomes by racial group, it is, again, because it must be that employers just are hiring a similarly qualified Black candidate at lower rates, promoting them at lower rates. Now, there's some evidence of that happening with studies where you're randomizing somebody's putative race on a CV. I think there's yeah. some evidence that that's part of what's going on. But I think the much deeper driver is these harder structural things that if you actually want real improvements on those outcomes, you need to change. I mean, you know, to go back to the example of gender and law, I think the right solution is to change the partner track, which, by the way, uh, from every friend of mine I've ever had who's worked in big law on the partner track, everybody is miserable. So this has all kinds of good consequences for all kinds of people. And it would make it much easier for women to say, hey, perhaps for two or three years in my early 30s, I focus to some extent or perhaps fully on children, but I'm still able to get back to the A path later on. That's a harder change to make, but it might actually contribute to a real solution, whereas giving a bunch of partners at a law firm implicit bias training is just not going to do anything. And that does seem like a real problem. Yeah, I agree completely with that. And a similar thing has happened when it comes to race, where 
it's just assumed all these differences in outcome are due to bias or discrimination. And my argument in the chapter is that implicit bias is answering a question that isn't really being asked. Like to me, it isn't a mystery what's going on, why racial disparities persist. I think part of that is explicit bias. Whenever they do a a big investigation of a police department, Ferguson, Chicago, they find a lot of explicit bias. There are genuinely racist cops. That's part of it. There's also these resume studies, which are actually complicated. If you look at them closely, it isn't clear how much of the effect, and there is a penalty for black names relative to white names. I think that's a big effect size or you know, medium effect size, which is big, zoomed out to this level. It's persistent, but it isn't clear whether what's driving that is a socioeconomic confound, meaning people view black names as poor, or a homophily, like this idea that we prefer people who are similar to us. Even in the most straightforward instances where there appears to be evidence of discrimination, it's complicated. And my gripe is to treat differential hiring patterns, especially in elite institutions like law firms or even newsrooms, as evidence of discrimination. Like you're sort of almost letting society off the hook. Like I'm from an upper middle class background. I was able to do unpaid internships. I had every advantage to get into journalism. And sure enough, here I am. I was able to put together like a good looking resume and have good clips. If I'd been born under different circumstances, I wouldn't have had access to that. And you could call it structural racism if you want, but you don't need individual actors making racist decisions along the career path to get that outcome. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that does help to explain what's going on here. To what extent is this specific to social psychology? You're making a case that social psychology is particularly dangerous in this, but some of this is in other disciplines as well. There's a really interesting paper in political science where we use a kind of implicit bias scale a lot. It's the racial resentment scale. Now, the problem for measuring racist attitudes is that there's obviously a social desirability bias. You know, in 1960, you may have asked people, you know, do you dislike African-Americans or do you, you know, want them to not be integrated in society? And you would have actually gotten a shockingly high percentage of the population saying yes. And so you could just ask a straightforward question in order to see how those attitudes change over time. And of course, they've come down extremely over the last 50 years. I mean, a very radical transformation. So political scientists understandably have started to say, well, look, what we should do instead is to ask slightly more roundabout questions in order to get at what we call racial resentment. And that's now basically the standard question for getting at how racist the respondent is and how that might correlate with various things. And so there's a sort of standard battery of questions here, which include things like Irish and Italian immigrants to the United States succeeded without any help, should the same be true yeah. for African-Americans, right? And if you say yes to that question, then you code it as racially resentful and you know the way that press releases so on work, it basically means like, you know, racism is the explanation for whatever correlates with that attribute in surveys. Now, there's a really interesting paper that a couple of political scientists from Harvard did a couple of years ago, where we used that same battery of questions around groups where we have reason to think that there's no strong animus in the United States. So I think one of the groups we asked about is Estonians. And we use all of the same questions and battery of questions to say, you know, how do you feel about Estonians? And it turned out that actually Americans have a strong racial resentment against Estonians. And in fact, those answers still correlate with all kinds of other things, right? So they're still, you're still more likely to vote for Donald Trump if you have racial resentment against Estonians as you do towards African-Americans. And that really implies that this battery of questions has not been measuring what we thought it measured. So I guess, is this a problem of social psychology or is this a problem of social science more broadly? 
That's a good question. So that paper, I actually pulled it up because I recognize what you're talking about. Conservatism and fairness in contemporary politics, unpacking the psychological underpinnings of modern racism. Riley Carney, Ryan Enos. People should look that up. It's a really interesting paper. Couple things. This is a nitpicky point. I'd say that's more a validity issue than a uh, replication issue per se. But in terms of shoddy instruments and shoddy concepts, you know, generating these results we then take as true in the media, absolutely. I mean, this is such a great example because no one bothered to ask this very simple question, which is when you switch, Blacks should be able to work their way up with Irish or Estonians should be able to work their way up. You don't get different results. That at the very least tells you that what's driving this isn't anti-Black racism per se. When I explained that those resume audit studies were complicated, that's partly because these clever researchers did a version of an audit study in the Chicago labor market where they had quote-unquote white names, quote-unquote black names, and then they made up a third fake ethnicity that I think sounded sort of vaguely Eastern European. And they found people were equally biased, if you want to call it that, against black-sounding names and this fake ethnicity. So that right away tells you whatever's going on is a little bit more complicated than straightforward anti-black racism, even if that's part of it. So I think there are these validity questions everywhere I think there are terrible instruments everywhere. Some of the coverage of like Trump voters and their supposed attitudes is just based on incredibly shoddy research. As for replication crises more specifically, yeah, those are everywhere. Social psychology is a particularly troubled area of psychology, but cancer research has a replication crisis. All sorts of different fields do. So it's not restricted to this one area. My book's argument is basically like, Social psych has been particularly influential in the 21st century, so we should pay particular attention to it. Plus, it's just an area I happen to be interested in and know something about. In political science, I think the most viral paper that argued that really the nature of the support for Donald Trump is because his voters were more likely to have racist attitudes, and it was reported in the New York Times and Vox and all kinds of places, actually used metrics that just as plausibly were economically based. So it looked at things like, how do you feel about trade with China? In an argument that explicitly was claiming to, to disentangle economic and more racially based arguments. And so if you thought that China is some kind of threat economically to the United States, that was then coded as a racial form of animus. And if people who hold that view more strongly were more likely to vote for Donald Trump, that means that Donald Trump's voters were motivated by racism. I know you remember the study, Jesse. Yeah, this was a Diana Mutt study. I think it was Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences. I almost wrote about this myself because it was just another example of such a tangled bad methodology. The move she does is she says she posits that people are driven not by racism per se, but by social dominance orientation, like they want to dominate other groups. It basically means racism, but it gives her more wriggle room. And without getting too into the weeds, she relies on this panel of GOP voters in 2012 and 2016 and how they responded to certain questions, this group became more open to a path for citizenship for undocumented immigrants in that span. Republicans did by a statistically significant amount. That is sort of shunted aside, which I would view as the most important question about whether Trump's racist appeals worked. And then she focuses, as you said, on this question of like whether you feel a threat from China in terms of trade. But like there are a lot of reasons if you're an American with an outsourced job to feel threatened by China, to just assume that that is about social dominance orientation or racism is exactly the kind of sloppy thinking that unfortunately I think is endemic 
but particularly in areas where we're talking about social justice themes and identity and stuff. I, I just there's other political scientists, including Peter Hall, who have had on the podcast in the past, who talk very convincingly, I think, about status and but the role of perceived threats to your status, the idea that sort of where you are in the social ladder in society is declining over time, but that helps to explain both for populism in the United States and other countries too. I think that's quite convincing. What was really striking about this paper, which was uncritically reported everywhere, and I've barely seen anybody criticize it, is that it was explicitly using a metric like how do you feel about trade with China to dismiss the idea that economic considerations were part right. of what drove the vote for Trump. And so to look at that question as the thing that decides that just seems sort of very, very odd. I want to just step back here a little bit, because we've now talked about criticisms of these different kinds of studies. And sometimes you said, well, it's a question of validity. It's a question of what instrument you use, what metric do you use? You use the word replication crisis. For listeners who are not as in the weeds with the various methodological problems that have turned up in social psychology in particular, but also in other fields of social science over the last years, you know, why is there reason to be concerned about the replication crisis? Why is there reason to be concerned about the outset validity of these different kinds of studies is give us a little bit of a sense of, you know, I think we're all inclined to trust science and with people are doing serious work. Why is it that studies that may actually be misleading uh, have been published and have gotten this mainstream attention? Yeah, I think 2010 is a good place to start here because there's a field of research called social priming. And the basic claim of social priming is that like these subtle or unconscious influences can affect us in like surprisingly profound ways. So a famous study from the 90s is that if you're exposed to stimuli briefly pertaining to old people, words like wrinkled or old or slow, that subsequently makes you walk slower. You sort of adopt the identity of an old person. There was another study suggesting that if you, it's hard to talk about without laughing now, but they had a, I think a hundred point scale for how religious people were. Half the group looked at a study of a guy hurling a discus, which is secular. Half looked at a more religious statue. And there was like a 20 point subsequent difference in how religious people said they were, which if you take that on its face, it suggests that just looking at a statue or a work of art can really swing how religious a person you are, which we all know intuitively is false. So there were these miraculous seeming social priming studies. And things came to a head when there was a social priming study that basically claimed people could see the future, that they had sighed, this supernatural force. This was published by a guy named Daryl Bem, and it opened up this conversation which showed that there are these subtle methodological errors you can make or questionable methodological decisions known as QRPs, questionable research practices. And researchers can through, I don't want to say no fault of their own, but little fault of their own, because this is not the same as fraud, they can find, imagine me doing air quotes here, they can find remarkable results that seem to be statistically significant. But then if you run the experiment again, under more careful circumstances with more rigorous methodological decisions, it falls apart. You don't find anything. So the, I'm compressing a lot of recent history here, but basically these, um, organizations were set up to go back and try to replicate experiments that were published in the past. And they found that like the overall replication rate of published psychological science, there's some heterogeneity depending on like what subfield, but it's probably around 50%. So that means that if I pull a random psych journal from 1996 and look at all the studies published in it, experimental psychology studies, there's probably only a coin flips chance any of them point to a real effect, which is like 
a profound threat to a body of research. When you think about it, imagine if only one out of two political science findings were real. Think about what that would do to confidence in political science. It's just not good. So explain to us how that can work, right? So we have here people who, as you're saying, by and large are working in good faith. They are obviously trying to find the most interesting kind of results they can and get a competitive advantage in that way. But they're not making up the numbers, right? They're not cooking the books. They're not saying, oh, you know, we had 20 people and they all responded this way when they actually didn't. When they get those results, they go home very satisfied with themselves that they've managed to find this really cool thing that actually is going to change the field. And yet it turns out that in at least one out of two cases, it really was wrong. How does it get there? What are these QRPs that allow good faith people trying to add to the knowledge we have in this academic field to have such a shockingly high error rate? Yeah, I think some of them are a little bit difficult to explain. But one concept that I think people grasp intuitively... I use the example in my book, imagine that I have a sugar pill and I give this sugar pill to 10,000 people and you know I'm corrupt or I have access to Russian hackers. So I get all their health data over the course of the year, their blood pressure, blood sugar levels, whether they get the flu, whether they get coronavirus, we can make this more current. If you have enough people and enough variables something will pop out. There will be some variable where I will see that people who took my sugar pill did better than people who didn't. The problem is by using the the statistical tools psychologists use, if I measure a hundred things, but then I only report on three variables where I found something without informing the reader or the paper reviewers that I tested a hundred things to find three statistically significant hits, I've actually probably have not found anything. Like just statistically, some differences will pop out by chance. And for a long time, even though this is not a particularly sophisticated statistical point, psychologists and, and surely other social scientists didn't realize how serious an issue it was. And it generates a lot of false positives. And luckily, there are fixes. You can pre register your study. You can say, I'm giving half the group this pill, half the group a placebo, and I'm only going to measure blood pressure and coronavirus and the flu. And that restricts the number of things you can measure and makes it harder to engage in these fishing expeditions, as quant heads call them. And the problem here is that that is actually a deep problem, and it does exist in other fields as well. So I remember starting to do some quantitative work in graduate school, didn't do all that much of it in political science. You know, it's natural, but you have a data set. And you want to understand a little bit more about what's going on in the data. And so you're looking for patterns, as you do in the world as well, right? I mean, early on, when we're trying to understand the coronavirus pandemic, we're trying to look at, you know, why is it going up in these countries and why is it not going up in those countries? And do they have something in common? So you come up with all of these sort of different hypotheses. And so you want to sort of play around with these different ideas. And so, you know, in statistics, the way to do that is to look for correlations between different things. And that is actually an important part of generating interesting hypotheses, right? You need to be exploring within the data in that kind of way in order to come up with good ideas. But as you're saying, you know, if you test 25, 30 different hypotheses, it then becomes quite likely that one of them just happens to be true in this particular data by chance. And there's a particular problem with the measure of validity that is often used. So it'll tell you something like, oh, you know, it is less than 5% likely that this particular correlation came about by chance. There seems to be something there. But that is reliant on the idea that you just did this kind of specification. If you run a lot of different regressions and a lot of different combinations, then, you know, if you run a hundred of them, you're probably going to end up with five of them 
that look like there's really something going on. It's part of that less than 5% likelihood. Because you've in fact had 100 random experiments you've run in your data. And so even if the one you find says it's over 95% likely that that's a real thing in the world, well, but you've tried it 100 times. And so that's how you ended up with that. So there was not a particularly lucid explanation, but hopefully- No, it was. I think it's, it's almost similar to like if you bought a million lottery tickets where you had a one in a million chance of winning one. And then you're like, oh my God, I won a one in a million lottery ticket chance without telling everyone you bought a million tickets. It's just much less statistically impressive or unlikely. So one question is, you're running so many implicit experiments, but it looks like you've found something, but it's really just because you've looked everywhere and that happen to be patterns in the world sometimes that don't actually speak to what's actually happening. It's just an artifact of the data. And if you then try to replicate it later, turns out you can't, right? I think then there's two sort of slightly different things, which aren't identical, but they're related and they come together in some context, right? So one is the sort of Diane Matt's problem that, you know, you take these three quite disparate questions about how do you feel about trade with China? How do you feel about, like, I know a question like affirmative action. And then you sort of take them together and you say, well, you know, if you answer in a particular kind of way on these three questions, that adds up to racial resentment or something like that, right? And it may be that sort of a term you're putting onto this data is actually misleading about what's really going on. And that especially since by the time it gets covered in the media, people don't really know what's under the hood. There's a sort of misunderstanding of what it really represents. So that's just sort of how good a metric is the set of things you're looking at for the real world. Then there's a related problem of what's the external validity of it, right? Like once we know that on this metric, you supposedly have higher status threat, does that actually make you act differently in the real world from anybody else? And these two problems seem to come together when you talk about something like the implicit bias test, right? Because it's not really clear that your speed of reaction on the keyboard to particular words and faces, you know, measure something for which the word implicit bias is quite the right term. And for related reasons, it's then really unclear whether in fact you are less likely to hire somebody who you supposedly have implicit bias against in a real world situation. Is that broadly the right way of thinking about this, Jesse? Yeah, yeah, that prognosis makes sense to me. I mean, it's like, you know, in the MUT study, if you ask someone, how do you feel about trade with China? You know, there's measurement issues with anything, but they're answering probably on like a seven-point Likert scale, and it's straightforward. You are capturing how they feel they feel about trade with China. Something like the implicit association test, there are those two layers of questionable assumptions. One is it isn't clear exactly what you're measuring because you're trying to get at this construct indirectly through a computer task. And then even once you have the score, it isn't clear that that correlates with anything in the real world. Throughout the book, I try to point out that for some of these claims, it isn't just you're making one assumption or one questionable claim. It's like a chain of them where if even one of them is wrong, the whole house of cards falls. I'm mixing metaphors badly. But yeah, often you have multiple questionable claims that just enter the media and the public consciousness without much skepticism. So I think now we sort of understand a little bit more about how it is that good faith people can end up with the scientific studies, which are either misleading or not replicable, you know, I want to get one more example in of how that has these real-world effects. We talked a little bit about the implicit bias test and the power pose. In your book, you talk really interestingly about how the military has been dealing with PTSD. Walk us through that story. Yeah, so back around 2008, it was clear the military had a crisis with regard to PTSD. Just the grueling nature of these multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan were 
you know, I hate to phrase this so bluntly, but they're sort of like wrecking some kids' brains. And these are kids, you know, they're 19, 20, 21 a lot of the time. So they come back, they have PTSD, terrible symptoms, a lot of suicide, a few murders. I mean, that's less common, but some people with PTSD do engage in violence, domestic violence or murder. The military didn't know what to do. What it decided to do, and I tell the story pretty specifically of how they got there, is they hired a guy named Martin Seligman. He's one of the godfathers of positive psychology. He runs a positive psychology school out of the University of Pennsylvania. And he said that he could take one of the Penn Positive Psychology Center's pre-existing offerings named the Penn Resilience Program, and that he could adapt that to the military. They're talking about like multiple questionable claims in a causal chain. It's hard to know even where to begin because for one thing, by 2009, right as this military program was ramping up, there was evidence that the Penn Resilience Program didn't work on its target population. These are 10 to 14-year-old school kids. The idea is you can teach these school kids some cognitive, behavioral, and sort of positive thinking principles, and you can prevent depression and anxiety. Just, you know, everyday depression, anxiety that kids experience. There's not really a lot of evidence this program works. This meta-analysis co-authored by the creator of the PRP, the Penn Resilience Program. She's been working on it since the 1990s. It found like these small effect sizes and it openly said, we're not sure these are clinically relevant. So, you know, just to oversimplify, there's no actual depression scale like this, but imagine there's a depression scale that went from one to a hundred and you found that an intervention had a statistically significant impact on the average participant that decreased their depression three points out of a hundred. In social science, something can be statistically significant, meaning a real difference between two groups, but not be meaningful in the real world. Because what does three points out of 100 get you? Does that actually reduce anyone's symptoms in a real way? Oftentimes, those are questions that are hard to answer. But just to explain that point, you know, if you have a poverty reduction program that gives five cents to everybody who has just lost a job, that program would make a statistically significant difference if you're able to measure net worth, net worth or bank balances with sufficient precision, but it wouldn't actually help. Exactly, yeah. Late aughts, there's already in the literature warning signs that the Penn Resilience Program doesn't work on 10 to 14-year-olds in normal school settings. Martin Seligman's claim to the military, which they find very convincing, is that you can then take this program from middle schoolers and give it to... 18 and 19 and 20 year old soldiers and older soldiers who are about to go into like Fallujah or about to go on deployment in Afghanistan. And I shouldn't even have to tell you that the differences in experiences between being a 12 year old schoolgirl who has like boy issues and homework issues that could contribute to depression and anxiety, not that those can't be serious in an individual case, that's extremely different from you have to go besiege Fallujah or you have to watch your friends get blown up next to you or you shot a civilian accidentally. There's just no comparison between those two settings. Tell us for what, what is the nature of the intervention? Because I think one of the things that's interesting here is just how something that just doesn't really seem like common sense once it has this halo of the scientific validity gets taken seriously by you know pretty hard-nosed people in the United States military. So what does this actually mean for the people who are in those programs? What did that intervention look like? Yeah, a lot of it was based on cognitive behavioral principles. So there's pretty good evidence for CBT in one-on-one -on -one therapy settings. The way it might work is that let's say I'm having dating problems and I tell my therapist, I feel like I'm worthless. I feel like people don't understand me. There's this school of thought that's been around since like the mid 20th century that you are exacerbating your own problems sometimes 
by adopting maladaptive responses to the world. So if someone breaks up with me, realistically, does that mean I'm fundamentally unlovable? Or does that mean that, you know, love is complicated and maybe I can do better next time. And maybe I didn't communicate my needs enough. There's usually some story we can tell ourselves that's more adaptive than the one we default to. And cognitive behavioral therapy tries to train people to do that. There's some controversy in any behavioral science subject, but my sense is the evidence is pretty good. That's different from taking a group of 20 kids who are mentally healthy and inculcating with these concepts before they experience adversity. That was always the hypothesis of the Penn Resilience Program, that you give these kids the tools beforehand, and that will reduce their depression and anxiety in the long run. And the appeal of it is you could just train a teacher to give these principles in, I think, four or five days. They wouldn't need to be a therapist. It would be much cheaper, more universal, and that it would work. So a lot of these were adapted without much changes to a military setting. So those were the kinds of things soldiers were trained to do. They were trained to come up with better stories about what happened to them. One was hunt the good stuff, which is like look for the good things in your life and feel gratitude about them, which some of the sources I talked to in learning about this were sort of anti-war and they rolled their eyes at like, you're sending a kid to Fallujah and you're telling him to hunt the good stuff. Um, Overall, though, there is this veneer of like respectable science, and it tells a story that feels intuitively right. The idea is we can build soldiers' resilience before we deploy them, and we can potentially save lives in the result in the long run at relatively low cost because this is a universal program they rolled out to the whole army. It sounds great. It's a great story, and the army completely fell for it. There was never evidence that you could adapt PRP to a military setting and it would work. And indeed, no evidence has ever emerged. And it remains a mandatory army program. I don't have an exact cost estimate, but probably more than $500 million at this point has been spent on it. And do we have any evidence that it isn't working or it's not being studied in a systematic way such that we could tell what impact it has had? This gets into details that I have in the book, but the short version is the survey instrument they rolled out as part of comprehensive soldier fitness to measure whether it was working was so poorly designed that it doesn't even ask questions you would ask to find out if soldiers have depression and PTSD. I would say that the best evidence available suggests it does nothing. Could it do some harm? Maybe. I mean, they've just never really tested these questions carefully and empirically. It was a incredibly botched rollout. And I should say Marty Seligman disagrees with me that there wasn't good evidence for PRP. I mentioned that in the book. He also wanted to pilot study. He wanted to roll it out to a smaller group of army personnel beforehand to see if it works. But the army just rushed ahead and said, no, this is too urgent. We need to roll this out to everybody, which is not how you should apply good science. So let me run something past you that I've been thinking about as I'm writing my next book, it's talking not about a particular social psychology fact, but about one that I think we do have good evidence for. And that's intergroup contact theory. So we've seen starting in the 1940s, a lot of studies about what happens when you take members of different groups who may have strong prejudice against each other, and you put them into various settings in which they're exposed to each other, might that help to undermine prejudice? The good news is, broadly speaking, that the answer is yes that in fact they do become more friendly towards each other, that the amount of prejudice is reduced. The bad news is that there's some very specific conditions that need to be fulfilled in order for that to be the case. And you know this has been studied in hundreds of different studies. And broadly speaking, what you want for them is that they are pursuing a common purpose, that they see each other as equals, and that the authorities send a strong message that they're expected to get along well. This, of course, is 
what happens in an institution, hopefully like the United States military, it happens very typically on sports teams. You're all part of a team. We all want to win the championship together. That level of, hey, you have something in common, then allows frank discussions about where people have differences and so on. You don't have to completely forget about that, but that needs to happen in a context of commonality. What I'm really struck by is that when you think about you know, a lot of the diversity trainings that are now being rolled out, like the anti-bias trainings that are now being rolled out, especially in the mold of people like Ibram Kendi and Robin DiAngelo, who are not the whole of the DEI diversity, excellent inclusion industry, but they are an increasingly predominant set of voices within it. It seems to break every single one of these precepts. It precisely starts with the idea that we'll never be equals because of the deep way in which race determines everything. But our goals are cross purposes, that there are these different social groups that are in this deep struggle against each other and as the dominant and the dominated, they have mutually hostile interests and so on and so forth. And so I sort of really think about, you know, how do we get to a point where we're chasing these various social psychological fads, but what to me looks like perhaps the best established finding in social psychology over the last 50 or 60 years isn't shaping the steps we are taking in order to fight those real problems with racial injustice and intolerance and prejudice what we have in our society. Yeah, the short answer is I agree completely. When you mention the contact hypothesis, whenever anyone does, I'm worried they're going to treat it as a magic pill, as a panacea. I think you laid it out nicely. A lot of the bodega owners in my part of Brooklyn are Muslim. It's not going to really improve intergroup relations if I have a lot of fleetingly pleasant interactions as a Jew with Muslim bodega owners. It needs to be more meaningful and equal than that. But to the extent we know how to reduce intergroup prejudice and increase you know, good intergroup interactions, this is the blueprint we have. And it's based on decades of research. It's not easy. You, know, you need to build these settings in the right way. But I'm more familiar with D'Angelo than Kendi. I've read her book closely. We had devoted a whole episode of our podcast to it. Yeah, really a really haunting episode with somebody <laughs> who literally was part of the training led by Robin D'Angelo. And I recommend everyone should go back. Yeah, and it seems like a lot of present-day diversity trainings of all stripes are moving against any concept of universalism. It seems like they want to view everything through the lens of racial differences, as though that's the only thing that matters and as though they should always be salient. I view that in light of what we know about human nature and social psychology as just poisonous. And I don't want to over, I mean, I don't want to overstate it as I'm describing it as a literal poison. But what I mean is this, like, you do not want to not talk about race, especially if you have like a mostly white firm with a few black people, you need to be able to talk openly and honestly about issues they face or discrimination they face. And my few examples of being sort of a minority, being Jewish when I was in Berlin, I think that's like 10% of what it's like to be the only black person in a firm, for example. It's not pleasant. Real issues arise and they should be talked about. But if you make every interaction about race, and if you're making these superficial differences incredibly salient, which is what D'Angelo does, to the point of giving different codes of behavior for black and white people, black people are allowed to cry, white people aren't, I think it's deranged. And I think there's this lack of like theory or intentionality behind a lot of diversity training efforts. There's a good book that I think actually got sort of overshadowed by 9-11 of all things called Race Experts by Elizabeth Lash Quinn. And she just talked about how like over the years, there's been this retreat from the big principles that animated the civil rights movement toward etiquette and consciousness building. And I don't know. I think a lot of this is just centered around white liberals' feelings and trying to give them some sort of spiritual path to redemption. And I find that stuff 
not just useless, but actively harmful. Yeah, I mean, I'm struck by one little detail in that, which is that D'Angelo believes that every time that a white person interrupts a black person, that is bringing the whole part of white supremacy to bear on them. And, you know, when you think about what kind of society to build, you want to encourage friendships between members of different groups. And thankfully, we have many of those in the United States. And, you know, in every friendship, you will sometimes interrupt each other. That is part of what it is. That does not mean that there's not patterns in how men interrupt women more than women interrupt men, or that there may not be a racial dynamic where if somebody is interrupted a little bit aggressively, that may have a different valence if it's a majority white firm and it's a white person interrupting a black person. I'm not saying that the underlying concern may not be real, but if you're saying that every time a white person interrupts a black person, that's the apartheid of white supremacy coming to bear, I think that's essentially saying you're never going to be able to have an equal friendship between a white and a black person. And well, that strikes me as a wrong and deeply dystopian view of a world. Yeah. And actually, in Katie's interview, there's this great example where this woman who went through a training found herself neurotically second-guessing just normal interactions with Black people. Like, at one point, a Black colleague was walking toward her, and he was wearing a suit or something nice. And she said something like, looking sharp. Because of this Robin D'Angelo training, she started to be like, oh, my God, would I have said he looked sharp if he wasn't Black? Am I racist? And it's just... A crazy way to understand the world because like when you have meaningful relationships with people, you compliment them on that, how they look when they look nice. You interrupt them. You disagree with them. I mean, to me, the other thing going on in a lot of liberal spaces is these very weird deference norms where you sort of can't really disagree with someone who's a person of color, which is weird because people of color disagree on specifically issues of social justice wildly. And my argument is like the only people I feel like I can't disagree with are like bosses or toddlers. And I want people from other groups to be fully integrated into liberal spaces and not seen as bosses or as toddlers, where you just nod along and say, yep, you're right, you're right, you're right. Part of like assimilation is people treat you the same way they treat everyone else. And they might disagree with you or they might yell at you. This is such a weird worldview. It seems like an attempt almost at some sort of resegregation. You are an American Jew who lived in Berlin for a little bit. I grew up Jewish in Germany. And as you're pointing out, there is an analogy that's also a very important disanalogy. So I'm not trying to say that, but the situation is all the same. But I think in this specific respect, the analogy has always struck me as quite strong, which is that when I was growing up, I felt those norms of deference towards me very strongly. That when people knew I was Jewish, this incredibly careful treatment of you know, trying to prove to me how sorry they were for the nation's past and, you know, how much they love the Jews and that they're not anti-Semitic and how much they love Woody Allen movies, perhaps that would be more controversial now, or, you know, that Hebrew is a beautiful language, neither which had anything to do with my world. And I always felt that to be incredibly disempowering. I mean, you cannot interact with somebody in a natural way or as an equal when they have, you know, this sense of fear of you. And that, I think, is one of the things that makes me a little bit allergic to some of the crazier stuff in this space today, where I feel like I'm being encouraged to treat people the way in which I very much dislike being treated myself. And so it's not because I don't get the importance of overcoming injustices. It's because from my own experience in a different, but in certain respects, similar context, I have a pretty strong conviction that that is not, in fact, a good way of making people feel equal or valued. If I was in a group of only Gentiles, I would hope the group would value my input on something like anti-Semitism, but I would find it incredibly creepy and condescending if they viewed me as some Semitic totem and they couldn't disagree with me and they agreed with anything I said. I wouldn't feel like I was being treated like an intellectual equal, but something 
honestly less than that. So, you know, I think it's very hard in the moment, especially if you're a white liberal and in a white dominated institution, you want to be a good ally. I think that's a huge sign of progress. I mean, 70 years ago, how many white people cared about treating their black colleagues and coworkers and friends well, didn't have a lot of friends, but black colleagues and coworkers, well, like none, almost. A lot of this is the symptoms of progress. But I just think we need to look critically at these individual efforts and trainings and ask what evidence is behind them. In the case of D'Angelo's trainings, there's A, no evidence of any sort supporting it, and B, a lot of theoretical reasons couched in the contact hypothesis to think it does harm. If you care about diversity and equity inclusion, you should want to bring to bear the best tools to improve the climate. And it is surprising to me how little people care about evidence and rigor in this subject. There's not that many studies of what does and doesn't work, but some of the best ones come from Frank Dobbin. And so I recommend to everybody the back episode of A Good Fight with Frank Dobbin, a sociologist at Harvard, about these questions. Let me close up this conversation, Jesse, by a sort of second-order question that's been bugging me throughout this conversation. And this is that, look, I'm an academic. I believe in the scientific method. I believe in the tremendous contribution that science, including social science, can make to the world. And at the same time, through serious studies in the scientific method, we have discovered that a lot of what we talk to be science has turned out to be wrong. But about 50% of the studies in social psychology, as you were saying, turned out to be wrong. And that's probably an even higher percentage of the news articles about social psychology, since a lot of the studies that can't be replicated are the most sort of striking and interesting and counterintuitive ones. So what do we make of that? If you want to value social science and have a view of a world that is informed by the real insights it can offer, but you're also aware of the extent to which actually some of the findings may turn out to be misleading. Where does that leave us in terms of our relationship towards science? What would a public sphere, what would an approach to the world look like that actually takes these concerns seriously without thereby having a generalized skepticism towards anything that's in a study? (laughs) I just endorse complete nihilism about everything. That's what it comes down to. I think my greatest hope with the book is that it gives readers a basic tool belt of how to ask the right questions of their boss or school principal or whoever else is the decision maker of like, is this new thing we're adopting scientifically based? And there's such a wide range of quality when it comes to scientific ideas. And you're right. We should value science. We should understand the difference between the scientific method and other methods of knowing that I don't think are as good when it comes to solving real world problems. I think part of the reason for hope is that psychology itself and other fields, it's improving. And one of my chapters talks about some of the methodological reforms that have taken hold so that the easy short answer is wait, because 10 years from now, you'll just be able to trust psychological science a lot more, I think. But in terms of what to do now, it's honestly complicated. You need to arm yourself with some knowledge about the difference between good science and bad science. I would say arm yourself with some of the sort of cautionary tales. I think comprehensive soldier fitness is perhaps the biggest one, although the IAT is up there too. Yeah, it's just, that's all there is to it. There's no easy answer because we're drowning in shoddy half-baked science claims. So there's a lot of, again, I'm mixing the metaphors, but we have a pretty big hole to dig out of before we can really just trust science in some simple way. And I would argue, you know, you should never trust science and view it as infallible because it is a social thing that is done by humans, even if the ideals underpinning it are less susceptible to bias and so forth. Yeah, I guess one of my takeaways is that you always need to be evaluating the things you're reading and certainly the things you're acting on. That doesn't mean that you need to be able to rerun the regressions in some kind of study. 
It doesn't mean that you have to pretend that only things that are common sense actually are true. Many things that today are common sense certainly didn't seem like common sense when they were first discovered. But it does mean that you should look at how you know, any one scientific claim actually seems to fit in to the overall body of scientific knowledge that we have, whether it seems to be a claim that we just have too much reason to believe, it's just too tempting a thing to believe, it just seems too easily play into other things we would like to believe about the world, you know, whether it's a study that you can see why it would immediately go viral because it just piques somebody's interest or it just seems sort of cool in that kind of way. And, and whenever that is the case, just take it with a larger grain of salt. Some of those claims, of course, do turn out to be true, but I think that's a warning sign that you're in dangerous territory and that you might want to make sure but there's more than one study supporting this, uh, to read more carefully, and people may be criticizing that position and so on. So does that seem like a helpful set totally. of rules? The studies of Trump voters are a great example because it's like, oh, wow, science has proven all the things I already knew to be true about Trump voters. They're just these ignorant bigots, and there's not much more to their voting decisions than that. I mean, anytime you get a result that's that self-satisfying, that to me is a warning sign. Jesse Single. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces.